Be still and know that God is here. Be still and know that God is here. Be still and know that God is here. In the name of our loving, liberating, life-giving God. Amen. Messenger by Mary Oliver my work is loving the world. Here the sunflowers, there the hummingbird, equal seekers of sweetness. Here the quickening yeast, there the blue plums. Here the clam deep in the speckled sand. Are my boots old? Is my coat torn? Am I no longer young and still not half perfect? Let me keep my mind on what matters, which is my work, which is mostly standing still and learning to be astonished. The Phoebe, the Delphinium, the sheep in the pasture and the pasture, which is mostly rejoicing since all the ingredients are here, which is gratitude to be given a mind and a heart and these body close a mouth with which to give shouts of joy to the moth and the wren to the sleepy dug up clam telling them all over and over how it is that we live forever good morning my beloved friends i don't know about you but i needed to hear those words today the reminder that our work is loving the world and keeping our minds on what matters, which is mostly standing still and learning to be astonished. This past week, I didn't do much standing still and sadly in my scurry, I forgot to be astonished. So it is from that place, that need to stand still and be astonished that I want to turn to the gospel we just heard from Matthew. It's called the parable of the talents. If you spent time in Sunday school as a child or you paid attention to preachers in your past, you have no doubt heard this parable we just heard explained as a metaphor for what we should do with our God-given talents a kind of use-it-or-lose-it theology. From this interpretation, God, as the master in the story, is the giver of our talents or our gifts, and those who cooperate in investing or giving away what they have received from God will be richly rewarded. Unless, like the third servant, we withhold what we have been given, in which case there are dire consequences. On the surface, it's not a bad metaphor, illustrating God's invitation for us to live with an attitude of abundance and generosity rather than lack and limit. But there's something else that seems to be going on if we stand still and listen to the text from a different perspective. To be clear, there is nothing in this traditional interpretation that contradicts my understanding of the notion of the primary attribute of the divine's yearning for us to live from a place of radical generosity. So why not let that be the message today? 
Why not preach a blessedly short sermon and simply remind us to stand still, be astonished, and then respond with open hearts to a growing awareness of what it means to live from a place of faith-filled generosity? Well, it's because in 1999, I read a book that would forever change the way I heard this and many other parables. The author was New Testament scholar William Herzog, and the book was Parables as Subversive Speech, Jesus as Pedagogue of the Oppressed. Herzog proposes that the parables attributed to Jesus were perhaps less about teaching theology and ethics and more about exposing the contradictions and often injustices of the economic and political realities of life at the time. Herzog writes, the parables have traditionally been accepted as earthly stories with heavenly meanings, but I believe it is equally possible to propose that Jesus used parables to present situations familiar to the rural poor, to encode the systems of oppression that controlled their lives and held them in bondage. So even though many sermons have been preached using the parables of the talents, with what has become a traditional interpretation, Herzog invites us to revisit this parable as a subversive teaching about the imbalance of power and justice. His work is extensive, but for our purpose this morning of finding some good news, I point only to the main challenge Herzog finds as he unravels the traditional interpretation of this parable. The original audience, he says, would have easily related to the description of a great household as their own reality, rather than an allegorical setting for a theological lesson. The most basic social unit in the ancient world was the household of the elite. In these families, household staff included stewards, accountants, tutors, and others. The master in the parable would have been easily understood as the head of this household unit. The master of each household traveled frequently in order to protect his interest and expand his influence. Before leaving home, the master would call together his inner circle, his most trusted staff. These were not household slaves in powerless positions. They could and did use their positions and status to advance themselves by typically exploiting each other. The first two slaves in the parable would have most likely granted loans to poor farmers at very high interest rates. And when the debts could not be repaid, the land would have been taken back from the farmers. The master expected his money to be doubled and any profit above that amount would have been the servants to keep. Exploiting farm workers was very common and culturally accepted. This exploitative process would have been expected by the master and the hearers of the story would have thought, yeah, business as usual. So from this perspective, the first two servants in the parable are far from what we would have considered good and trustworthy. In fact, put in this context, they represent economic exploitation and the unscrupulous business practices, which again would have been very easily recognized by the listeners of the story. 
Jesus may very well have been exposing the rampant injustice and indignity of such business practices. And then we have the third servant. Not only does he not do what is expected, but he is rebuked for being a worthless slave and then is thrown into the outer darkness. And here we are, the church, who has historically chimed in and even energetically lifted up the vilification of this third servant as well. Read or listen to sermons in any number of denominations, including our own, and what you will find most often is the same, teachings that go something like this. Don't squander your talents or hide them like the third servant. Or don't be lazy and worthless like the third servant, hoarding what is not yours to begin with. And on and on. You get the point. But here is where it gets good if we stand still and pay attention from a different perspective. Here is what Herzog's academic work can inspire and I think even influence our lived experience and choices as a faith community. Here is the glorious notion that can propel us into living the gospel with more courage and more faith. If we situate ourselves into the historical context of this original audience, we may be able, able to hear this story as a strong witnessing to courageous dissent. Courageous dissent, the willingness to stand up and stand against any system of oppression or injustice regardless of the consequences, or maybe especially because of the consequences to ourselves. Courageous dissent as a moniker that elicits participation from all of us, wherever we find ourselves, even during this season of being apart and not as engaged in the world as any of us would like to be. Courageous dissent as yet another description, I believe, of the gospel imperative that compels us to living a life serving others. The third servant doesn't play by the rules of the household or the larger economic reality of the day. In fact, as Herzog points out, he, quote, blows the whistle on the whole charade. When this guy speaks, he reveals what has been covered beneath the public rhetoric of praise and promise. He names and exposes the true nature of his employer and the exploitation that has been going on. He even takes his master's money out of circulation by burying it, and by doing so, Hartzog argues that he breaks a cycle of oppression. He exposes the inner circle as people involved in perpetuating institutionalized injustice. But of course, this is done at a great risk, at a great risk of this third servant, perhaps with fear of the master and consequences to be sure. So why does he do it? Is it a mistake? No, not likely. What is more likely is that the third servant in this story represents the courage required to stand with others against oppression. This servant found the inner strength to speak truth to power and face the consequences. Jesus was teaching a strong lesson that day, and it is a lesson as timely for us as I think it probably was then. As we continue to face into the pandemics swirling all around us, medical, social, political, economic, 
It can be overwhelming, and sometimes we need to self-protect. But Jesus is offering us a new investment strategy, if you will. I hear a call today, a call today for us to keep on keeping on, working with others to expose all the forms of economic, political, and social injustice. I hear a challenge and a way for us to find ways in our own lives to be courageous dissenters ourselves whenever and wherever the need arises. I hear a promise that the patterning of our lives after the third servant is neither an act of futility or naivete, but it's a courageous act of faith. It is a commitment grounded in the awareness of God's abundant love and generosity. I hear a story told by Jesus to invite followers then and now to accept the challenge of this investment strategy it is a strategy that meets us in our comfort zones and then pushes us towards discomfort for the sake of justice for all. It is a strategy that begs us to love the world by standing still with others and keeping our minds open on what matters. It is a strategy to wake us up, to be astonished, and then to become courageous dissenters, standing up to and pushing back on anything that creates oppression. As we invest all of who we are and all of who we yearn to be, members, co-creators with God into the kinship of heaven, I'm willing to invest. Are you ready? May it be so.